Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, August 14th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Eno fresh off a trip to Chicago, hence the late afternoon Monday record time. You'll be hearing this episode a little bit later than usual. So fresh we'll talk about- is not the word I'd use. You know what? I was trying to round up and help you. <laughs> yeah. I think our listeners, our loyal listeners especially, know that travel is harsh on you. Mm. Especially with the, I'm a, I'm an eight and a half hour night guy, you know, between the beers and the 8 a.m. conference starts. Yeah. That's just how it goes. Fresh so not the word. We'll talk about a few takeaways from that conference. We'll talk about some mailbag questions, including a good one about late season starting pitching strategy. We had a question about sweepers, uh, one asking if we're still in the stone age of arm health. So a lot of pitching related things to get to, but the big news Shocking the baseball world over the weekend, Wander Franco has now been placed on the restricted list. Major League Baseball is looking into social media posts that surfaced over the weekend. The posts allege that Franco had an inappropriate relationship with a minor. So disgusting allegations at this point, and there's not a ton that we know. The latest that I saw as of Monday afternoon is that he'll be on the restricted list until at least August 22nd. And we know from Similar instances, a lot of times the league's investigation takes several weeks to be completed. So there's a lot of uncertainty just in general as far as when we might have more information that comes to light. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, being a, a part of the the coverage and knowing now, you know, how the athletic works in times like these, like, it's a really difficult uh, process right now. Uh, you know, reporters want to give as much information as possible, but there are legal ramifications for saying the wrong thing. Uh, and, uh, in the case of a minor, um, you know, there's, uh, even sharing the allegations is problematic. Like those are, you know, pictures of a minor. And, uh, so right now it's just one of those really weird spots where you just have to kind of respect the process, I think. And I think there, I understand the need for information and the, and the desire for information, especially when put up against the fact that now he is suspended. It feels like, you know, we should have more information about why he's suspended. Um, but because I think there's a minor involved in this, you kind of have to be respectful and take the steps you're supposed to take. And, you know, that includes asking the team for comment, asking them the, you know, asking his agent for comment, getting the comment from the player. And uh, it's not really, I mean, it's it's not really good journalism to say much before you have those things. Right. Because, you know, you're then you're just kind of salaciously retweeting a picture of a, a you know, a young girl kissing Wanda Franco. It's just like, that's not cool either. So, I, you know, I, I think we've just got to wait and, um, you know, I hope there's, uh, I hope there's uh, some sort of middle ground of truth that, uh, you know, makes some sense because right now it just, just seems really sad. Yeah. Right there with you. But, um, you know, we'll share more information once we do have something to pass along on this situation. Uh, as far as the trip goes, getting to Chicago, getting to listen to a lot of very bright folks talk about the game from a lot of different angles, it sounded like it was a, kind of a good late season opportunity for you just to get the the brain working in different ways, like thinking about problems in, in ways maybe you previously hadn't. So I was curious, all the different speakers you had a chance to listen to, folks you got to talk to. During the trip, uh, you know, any any major takeaways, either things you're thinking about working on or things you heard or learned that you thought were really interesting from that trip? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the bulk of it for me was uh, discussions about Stuff Plus, um, and there were three presentations that uh, included Stuff Plus in some way or another and, and tried to improve on some aspect of it um, or, or get better results than it. Um, and so I'll get to those in a second. Otherwise, um, you know, some of the cool uh, pieces, presentations I saw, one of them, uh, by Dr. Alan Nathan was really interesting. He found that um, bats with higher frequencies, like that's what I mean, like fr like sound frequencies. frequencies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bats with higher sound frequencies uh, produced higher exit velocities, and has something to do with how the bat vibrates. And so uh, he pr he pr created a really simple test where. You kind of, you hold the bat kind of by its handle and then you take the ball and you, you kind of tap it along it until you find the place where it vibrates the least. That's kind of like harmonic center of the, of the bat. And then at that place, you uh, ping it. So it's kind of like uh, on the skinnier side of the barrel. It's not all the way down on the barrel. Um, and uh, you'd sort of just take the ball and ping it against the, the baseball bat. And if you have two different wooden baseball bats and you do that, you'll hear two different sounds. And the higher sound is the is the the bat that's going to produce higher exit velocities. So I thought that was I love how uh, it also comes with like a pretty simple test, you know, that almost anybody can do. And it and I kind of goes hand in glove with. I swear to God, I've heard players talk about because I did this piece um, with Keenan Long at, at Long Ball Labs, and you know where we talked about this on the, on the pod too about you know, how different each bat can be. Um, and I swear when we were talking to players, they would, they would, some of them would talk about like sort of flicking, flicking it and listening to it and like, and listening. And the joke is like, you know, oh, I hear more hits than this one, but like literally you can. <laughs> that is pretty remarkable. So e even with that test, it's not, there's, there's not some other piece of equipment that goes alongside the bat as you're doing the tap test? I mean, he did it with more robust equipment where that's capturing the precise uh, MHZ, you know, like the, the whatever the, the measure of frequency is, you know? I think it's megahertz. That's megahertz? Yeah, so, you, so I guess you're, he had something that was like giving precise megahertz represent, uh, uh, precision um, uh, measurements. Hmm. And that helped him, of course, plot it all and, and do, you know, good research. But, you know, in terms of the, he ended it with a real subjective thing where he's like, hey, this one was lower and this one sounds higher. You can hear it. And the one with, that was higher produces exit, better exit velocities. So uh, that one blew my mind. Um, Stuart Wallace did a, a pretty cool uh, presentation about uh, how neck mobility uh, is an unexplored risk factor um, for elbow injury. Uh, and he was able to show that shoulder strength goes down uh, for some pitchers, uh, depending on how far they can move their neck, like towards their shoulders. Uh, so the, that was an interesting thing, because I think the neck is not really something that uh, people measure force on or think about that often. And uh, so he made a case that there should be more research there. Um, Sean O'Rourke uh, did a, a cool presentation about uh, whether or not uh, baseball data can be democratic. And it was about, you know, sort of the delicate thing when it comes to baseball data of measuring the needs of the many uh, versus the needs of the of the individual. And, you know, that's how he set it all up was democracy is this sort of interplay between the, you know, wanting to do quick action, wanting to unify, do unified action, uh, but also wanting to le let people have autonomy and also, you know, have, have, have a vote, right? You know, it's not just about voting for stuff. It's that relationship between the many and the few. Um, and... So you can think about that in baseball data and be like, yeah, you know, teams and baseball writ large wants to, for example, they, let's, let's do something that's altruistic. They want to keep their players healthier, right? In order to do this quick unified action, to do this big unified action, which is keep the players healthier, 
you may want to ask every player for detailed biological, biomechanical measurements of their bodies that go beyond sort of reported data, which is like he had a double today in the game. Now we're talking about his Vegas, his you know ability to rotate things, his strength and mobility and different joints. You know, some of these things may be unchangeable. And therefore, you could be giving the, the team information about yourself that is health information that could be used against you. He does not have good hip rotation or hip mobility. And we found that guys, neck mobility, I just gave you a piece. What if he finds that neck mobility is a risk factor and now teams uh, measure everybody's neck mobility in spring and you give them the, you know, the opportunity to do that and let them do that and... Now they ha know that your neck isn't mobile and you're going to get hurt, and so they're you're on the list of pitchers to trade before he gets hurt. Uh, yeah, they, they could use it against you there. They could use it against you in an, uh, an arbitration case in some way. I mean, the, what was nice is that uh, Sean pointed out that they they're not allowed to use it in arbitration because there's a collectively bargained process in, in arbitration in which the union has power and has said nothing wearable is allowed. Nothing that comes from wearable tech is allowed in arbitration. That's in the CBA. So his solution was, if we do want it to be democratic, then we have to basically organize and have to have a minor league union and have to have uh, maybe even a college player union mm. because these college players are being uh, measured in the same way. And that, that allows you some control over the data and you get to, you know, Maybe get a quid pro quo, get something back for giving them access to that, you know, something that, you know, better pensions so that the people who are hurt, you know, you know, better medical, maybe something like that. But you, 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 if you organize, you have some power over it and you can maybe have a democratic process around that data because without that power, you just, you know, it's just, you're just taking the data. You know, taking the data from the individual. <laughs> well, good on the Players Association for being ahead of the curve on, on that. <laughs> yeah yeah good good for them to the think right about direction. that issue and it's it's definitely something that i talk to with players all the time trevor may for example is recording every uh little bit about his life in terms of you know resting heart rate in the morning sleep that he had how much hydration every little bit he's he's recording that and i asked him if he would give the team access to that and he said sure because I, I want to know it. I want to know as much as I know, can from it. I want to, you know, learn from it. And uh, I also just don't think as an older reliever that, you know, there's anything in here that <laughs> that'll get me in trouble. Basically, he's like, you know, they're measuring me based on stuff plus and, and fastball velo. Like, <laughs> they don't care about how much I sleep at night. <laughs> it might just help me figure things out. So, um, there was... Um, those were some of the uh, particular ones I liked. Oh, Sarah Thompson from Sports Info Solutions had an interesting piece that has no fantasy value, really, but <laughs> it was talking about how um, the uh, what's what's the impact of directional momentum on a, on an infield play. So if you've got a guy who's going towards second base to get a ball and he needs to throw it to first, you know, versus a guy who's gathering the ball on the way to first. Um, and she went and they, I think they revised some of the stuff in defensive run saves to account for this because plays, I think she had some play by Mookie Betts where she was like, you know, on plays going away from first base of, of, you know, a certain type, like a meat of medium difficulty. Otherwise, he, you know, he could be 90% if he's going towards first base to get the play and more like 65%. Uh, when he's going towards second base to make the play. So uh, I thought that was pretty interesting uh, as well. But uh, yeah, so the last part was uh, a lot of talking about Stuff Plus. Uh, we had a presentation from Scott Powers, uh, who used to run the Braves, uh, the, the, uh, used to be in the Dodgers um, uh, R&D department, and now is a professor of sports analytics. And... Um, at Rice University. And so Scott Powers and Vincente Iglesias worked together to do something that was very similar to Stuff Plus in output, but um, 
in terms of how they modeled uh, it within, it was different. And one of the things that uh, they considered in their model that I did not really consider much in ours was the amount of noise that can be had around uh, a pitch trajectory. So, for example, you know, uh, a pitcher throws a, an 88-mile-an-hour slider with, uh, you know, two, two vertical or whatever, right? And what we found was if he throws that five times, then you can, you can say pretty well that that's, that's what a slider looks like. You know, there's not actually that much noise around it. But what they did was there is some noise. And, you know, sometimes it's 86 with four vertical. Or, you know what I mean? Like the, there is some like difference from pitch to pitch. And so they threw that uncertainty into their model um but uh they weren't able to beat a regress stuff plus so you know i thought it was an interesting uh, idea um from the standpoint of that there was another um uh, stuff plus model uh done by cal aldred uh who used to be in the uh, analytics department for the blue jays um his was pretty close to uh the actual stuff plus but he did some stuff where he kind of did some of his own um uh pitch classifications so he kind of did some clustering analysis to just be like you know these i'm going to do my own pitch classifications instead of taking from anywhere because there there is some we've talked about this on the show there is some like there are some pitfalls that can that it can happen in stuff plus due to uh, pitch classification and and then privately I was talking uh, with a lot of different people about um, uh, about stuff plus and um, you know one of the things that I kept talking about was um, that uh, you uh, we we base the the pitches stuff the secondary pitches stuff plus off the fastball then people have two fastballs what do you do in that situation? And what we just do is we base it right now off the number one hard pitch thrown in a game. Uh, so it's almost defined by game, and you're just like, well, he threw the four seam the most. That's his primary fastball. We're going to define everything off the four seam, right? Um, the problem with that is that maybe against lefties, they never throw the, the sinker, you know, and they're four seam against lefties. But then maybe against righties, they throw a lot of sinkers. And so, uh, you know, one thing you could do is split every pitcher in two. And just be like, this is Andrew Haney against lefties and this is Andrew Haney against righties. And I'm going to define all the stuff plus based on the, the primary fastball in those situations. And then I'm just going to slam it back together again. It could it could work. We'll we'll look at it for sure. Uh, it, you know, it's something to think about. Another thing to think about would be, and this I think is better for player development than it is for, for uh, evaluation or fantasy. Which is, you could create a stuff plus, say, call it stuff four, or stuff two, and basically have a whole set of stuff numbers based around their four seam, and then a whole set of stuff numbers based on their two seam. Now, th why I think this would be co cool in player development is if you're a pitching coach, you can be like, whoa, okay, all right, I see some pitch pairings here that we need to do, and like, oh, this pitch is way better if he pairs it basically with a two-seam than the four-seam, and then maybe even you could come up with stuff with like, man, all his numbers uh, are better stuff to us, you know, we should just be spending more time improving his sinker, his two-seamer. You know, just because it seems like all the stuff is better on that side. That's that's the direction we should go. Um, and it might even give you hints as to, oh, man, these pitches are better off of a two-plane pitch than off of a one-plane pitch. You know, if it, that's another thing you could sort of think if you saw a bunch of stuff, too, that was better. Anyway, that would be hard then to sort of remash together to get a one number and for evaluation purposes. It seems like that's a player development answer. Um, but it does make you think about uh, applications for Stuff Plus and uh, how it's used and how it's best used. And that was uh, a primary uh, mode of conversation for me over the weekend. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, 
Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So we had a couple of related questions, even though I don't think the listeners who sent these questions were at the conference, but they're very much on topic with some of these concepts that you're, you're bringing to the table. One of those is a question from Brian, and it's a Stuff Plus training data question. Uh, hearing Eno talk about the league's hitters adapting to sliders and how sinkers seem to be more effective this year got me thinking about how Stuff Plus changes over time. Have you looked into how much training data is optimal when fitting the Stuff Plus model? As an example, are sweeper slider stuff numbers inflated for 2023 because they used 2021 data for model training and hitters hadn't seen as many sweepers at that point? and hadn't had time to adjust their approaches? If so, are there any trends that would lead to a lodum approach that goes against particular stuff numbers and bets on other profiles? It leads to a philosophical rabbit hole, since it would imply throwing the exact pitcher throwing the exact same pitches in two different years might have different stuff numbers, but maybe that makes sense because a pitch's quality is dependent on the hitter, their facing's ability to hit it. Yeah, I think there's a couple interesting things in here, which is that like this year, sinkers are performing better relative to other pitches than they have in pitch in the pitch tracking era. And this year, sliders are performing worse relative to the other pitches uh, than they have in the uh, in the pitch tracking era. And so, uh, you know, you could come away with a few conclusions. That one is that oh, maybe we're approaching too many sliders. You know, maybe this is. Now we're throwing, or or maybe the hitters are being trained to hit sliders because they're seeing so many sliders uh, from pitchers. So they're they're basically the game is training them to be better against sliders. And then the, the opposite would be true for sinkers, is they just don't see good sinkers anymore. But also, you, they don't see bad sinkers anymore. You know, the number of sinkers thrown goes down, down, down. Who's left throwing sinkers? People who have good sinkers. Um, so there's uh so that's that's one thing is to think maybe okay all right maybe like a, a slider heavy guy is not going to be as good this year and maybe uh there's some there's definitely some examples out there of guys with sinkers that seem to be outperforming some of their projections and some of their uh their modeling so you, that's a simple kind of answer there but there's a, a deeper more philosophical question where i saw you know criticism of stuff plus is saying of course it's going to beat fip or sierra or all these other things because you know it's born yesterday basically you know like it's the newest it it, it, it was trained on 21 uh, uh, and 20 20 21 and 22 data so it knows what the run environment is it knows what the ball is it knows things about how the game is played right now um and so it's only going to get worse as we train it less going forward and i and i totally get that uh criticism it is definitely trained on more data like i know for example there's another stuff plus out there where that person has trained it against 2023 data and is getting some better numbers than my stuff plus but it's like you know, so I've been on the other side. Of that, I've been like, ah, well, you just trained it on 2023 data. Of course, <laughs> yours is better. You know, <laughs> uh, we have made the choice to not uh, update Stuff Plus during this season because we want it's the first season it's on Fangraphs. We just want to, you know, have it be the same all year. Not do anything. Not do anything under the hood. Gather some different things we want to do, and then maybe do it in the off season. So that's. That's our plan. But I want to push back a little bit on the idea that because it was trained on recent data, it's it's lesser. And in fact, wonder if that makes it, uh, is, that, is, that a, is that a feature maybe and not a bug? And the, my understanding is this. Would you, do you think you'd be more likely to know something about baseball the way it's been played the last three years 
you know, with the ball that's being played and how it is and how and how strategy is right now, or to know something about baseball that's been true for 130 years. Yeah, generally, I think you want the more recent snapshot because the game changes and changes and then changes some more and you'd have so much noisy information that would be, I think, worthless based on yeah. how it's played currently. Yeah, we would have no... I, I like if we were running stuff plus and it was still the stuff plus that was trained in like it was trained in 1986 and was born in 86 and and through you know 84 through 86 uh was the birth of stuff plus then I think it would still it would love the heck out of sinkers because people used to throw sinkers and hitters weren't necessarily uh, grooving their arm their 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 path their bat path to like destroy sinkers but then in the late 80s, early 90s, the ball started flying further. 87 is one of the first big ball flight years where the ball just changed one, all of a sudden in one year. And so you start getting this better ball flight. And if you have better ball flight, then what are you going to do? You're going to build a swing that can take that low sinker and put it in the seats, you know? Uh, and so you had this massive change in how hitters approach things. And now... Uh, no matter what kind of model you're looking at, it'll tell you, you cannot throw a sinker righty on lefty. Do not do that. You know? So, um, you know, the game changes. And so, I, I don't know. I, I um, That's something to think about long term. And then, um, there was one last thing that came up that might be relevant. It's okay. I'll have more for the, the lodum angle of that question down the road because I have to think about what exactly, like what holes I want to poke in everything before. Like, there needs to be some some reasoning behind lodum before I like try to scale that concept out to something I would actually trust for team building purposes. Well, let me let me give you some 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 food for thought maybe because uh, there was a an attendee. Uh, that came up to me, uh, Sam Walsh, uh, and his Twitter handle is Samuel J. Walsh, uh, young student, just graduated, looking uh, for a job in baseball, and he had a very interesting critique of not only Stuff Plus, but XERA, XWOBA, uh, you know, some of the expected stats, and it goes like this. So, if you're doing this work where you have expected, you're trying to create an expected metric, most of the time, the first thing you do is try to remove context. And you're trying to just look at the probability of hitting a single or hitting a double. You're not trying to predict something like RBI, you know, in, in this, because what you're trying to do is predict just the likelihood of these different events. And you want the cleanest events. So it's first, second, you know, if double, single, triple, maybe ground ball, fly ball, you know, maybe predicting launch angles and exit velocities. Like we are some of that and stuff plus. So, but you want it to be devoid of context because you you just want to be uh, trying to create these, these context lists because context is where team stuff comes in and context is where that's the noise of the everyday game is context was there was there a guy on first and second when you hit your homer right or was there nobody on base when you hit your homer i mean that's that could be the difference in a game but is there is there any reasoning uh, was he more likely to hit the homer when there was first and second or no was he more likely to hit the homer there's nobody on first and second you know so it's like you would try to dev take that context out and be like i just want to know the likelihood he's going to hit a homer you know what i mean so that's that's sort of the underlying thing but here here's an interesting thing that happens if you do that you don't maybe and this is uh, sam walsh's point you don't maybe value double plays enough <laughs> right because you're just like, what's the value of a ground ball in all situations, you know? And so, you know, you're trying to take context out by just saying, what's the value of a ground ball? What is the intrinsic value of a ground ball? And you don't necessarily, you, you start talking about what's the likelihood of a single. And you don't talk about what's the likelihood of a double play in the current structures of XERA, XWOBA, and stuff. Now, here's a problem with that. If you start picking, putting your finger in the model, right? And you're going to say, 
hey, I don't think we value ground balls enough. I'm just going to take my finger in here and be like, more value on ground balls because of double plays, right? Well, somebody pointed out, well, you know what's going to happen is that your value for sliders and four seams is going to go down. You know why? Because you use four seamers and sliders for whiffs. Mm. And if you're pushing the, the value around and saying, no, oh, I need more double plays, then the contextual stuff for four seamers and sliders starts to come in and be like, well, mm, maybe I should put my finger over here and put some more value on four seams and sliders because they get you whiffs if the bases are loaded and it's three, two, three, two count. They're not going to throw a sinker. You know what I mean? <laughs> so then you, then you become this person who's like putting a bunch of fingers everywhere, just trying to be like, put like trying to move things around. So I, uh, I, I'm done to talk to Sam some more and, um, there, there may be something that we can do about it. And he thinks that would uh, greatly improve the model on changeups and sinkers, which is still one of the weaknesses of the model. So, you know, and I also wrote on Friday about, you know, where there's some pitcher groups, starting pitcher groups that seem to do better than stuff plus and, and pitching plus. And what I found was that you're slightly more likely to be better if you have more pitches. It's the stuff we've talked about here. More pitches uh, and a changeup. So uh, if you're looking for pitchers, uh, I, I, I like Emerson Hancock, I think is really interesting in this analysis. Plus changeup, that stuff plus doesn't love yet. It's in a small sample, so you don't know. However, the changeup's also not getting whiffs in the game. But could it be a great double play ground ball machine, you know, type of pitch, you know? Um, so, but he also doesn't throw like five pitches. He throws three pitches. But you're talking about a guy who throws three pitches, has command, has a good changeup. He may be a guy that you don't sort of hew, hew only to stuff plus on. There's so much context that I think is valuable, but... <laughs> how pitches interact with each other, right? You have multiple pitches, but are they the right pitches? Like, are, do they all sync up in a way where you get that ideal banana peel effect as we've talked about in the past where you get your four-seamer with ride, you got your cutter, you got something that cuts into a right-handed, you get like all the different possible movement profiles. You got something with some drop. That's sort of the ideal. But you could just have a lot of pitches and they don't work well together because you- Bryce Miller. You didn't build an arsenal that makes sense. You, you maybe, threw stuff that was Bryce Miller. Maybe you can see that each of those pitches coming out of the hand, or maybe they don't look like each other. You know? Yeah. So I mean, I think I think that's important to to keep in mind too, because if you just say, oh, "I'm just targeting anyone who has five or more pitches," that's my strategy. It's like, um, okay, that it's a strategy. I don't know if it's going to lead you to uh, constant success and. The other question we got that's sort of related to this, I'll fold this in now too, is from our, our loyal listener, OJ. OJ writes, I find this sweeper craze confusing. Let me back up. OJ's first line was, hope you guys are dealing well with your separation, which we're just, you know, we <laughs> we didn't see each other as much as you'd think for as close as we lived together because we're just busy, you know, all that stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I find this sweeper craze confusing. Tim McCarver and Ralph Kiner always used to say the worst pitch in baseball is the hanging slider. As they explained, the hanging aspect was a function of getting too far under the ball, so you're almost throwing it like an underhanded frisbee toss. The ball then breaks horizontally instead of vertically, and as long as the batter's on the right swing path, the ball will be there. The sweeper seems almost like an intentional hanging slider. Is there some amount of break it has to have before it becomes effective? Can you ever throw it to an opposite side batter? It seems like a lefty hitter would just see it forever coming from a righty, and most of all, is it working? Are the guys who are throwing it succeeding with it? So a lot to get to here. Um, I think, is it, are, are we comfortable saying yeah, if you hang any breaking ball, it, it's not, it's not great. <laughs> the poorly located breaking balls are going to get hit. But it is harder to, to spot a, a hanging sweeper because they, they are thrown high in the zone more and they don't have as much drop as other breaking balls. Right. And I think you had that piece way back in April and you had one of the examples, I want to say it was the Pablo Lopez gif in that example where hitters swing under them. They can mm -hmm. swing and miss right underneath the sweeper because it doesn't drop the way they expect it to. And that's sort of unique. Uh, but as far as like, the, the usage of the sweeper, this sort of connects with the idea of, well, what else do you throw? Does this fit the other pitches that you throw? I mean, Shohei Otani 
throws a sweeper, I think, more than anything this season, at least by the savant classifications. And he throws it to lefties and righties, so it's not just a, a pitch that he uses only against righties. And by all accounts, it works really well, in part because he's also got a four-seamer and a cutter. Those are his three most used pitches. Sweeper, four-seamer, cutter. So how much of this is just having the right complementary pitch or two to make the sweeper as effective as it can possibly be? Yeah. Uh, so people are having more success against the sweeper than they ever had. And, and I had the piece of the people having more success against the slider than they ever had. The, this is the improvement. So last year, there were 21,000 sweepers thrown. This year, they've already been 22,000 sweepers thrown. So we're going to we're gonna go up by at least 50% more sweepers thrown this year. Last year, batters hit 194, 247, 330 against the sweeper. That's why everyone started throwing sweeper. <laughs> <laughs> this year, uh, there's been a massive improvement. This is the best anyone's ever done against sweeper in this database as a league. It's 203, 256, 354. That's a pretty big improvement. That's 24 points of slugging in one year on the pitch. So what you have is this is such a big craze that I think more people are throwing it to lefties. More people are throwing them in hitters counts. More people are throwing sweepers. The, the hitters are starting to see it and train against it. And that means more bad sweepers. So some people are throwing sweepers that shouldn't be. Maybe Bryce Miller. And <laughs> uh, then you have uh, the, 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 the slider. Well, the slider, the, just the slider is being hit better than ever by itself. So even if you take the sweeper out. Uh, this year, it's being hit 224, 279, 384. So despite there being this big jump up on how hitters are hitting the sweeper, that 354 slugging for the sweeper is still lower than the 384 slugging for the slider. So the sweeper is still a very powerful pitch. I would expect there, I expect there to be more and more of it because even with this regression, uh, you found that uh, that hitters have not learned it completely, and they're not even hitting it as hard as regular sliders. And that 354 slugging, I would probably venture is the best of any pitch type. Uh, but I'll check changeups real quick because they do kind of uh, reduce slugging. But, um, yeah, so it's sweeper still a good pitch. It's not as good as it was before. It's way more popular. Uh, Changeups this year have a 381 slugging. So the sweeper is still the best pitch in baseball, even though it's worse than it was before. Yeah, the reasoning on that, that all makes sense. Like the dilution, especially. Yeah, more people are throwing it. More people are throwing it doesn't mean they're all good. Like that's mm. just a, a thing. That you, it depends why you're throwing it. It might be the desperation adjustment for some guys that are on the bottom of the roster just trying to find something that keeps them in the league. And well, maybe it works and maybe it's just as bad as the other pitches that were kind of steering <laughs> them out of the league in the first place, right? Maybe That's, they're just a bad pitcher. Right. It's uh, harsh, but unfortunately, yeah. probably very true. One last bit, though. He was talking about the hanging aspect. Yeah. I, I think this is why some people will say, well, the sweeper's been around forever. It's a slurve. And that's exactly what the sweeper is not. Like a good sweeper, and this is also probably why there's some good sweepers and some bad sweepers. A good sweeper uses seam-shifted wake uh, to drop less than you'd expect. And what's happening is the seams are gathering at the top, so you get a little bit of a, a spinning slider dot at the top where the seams gather there. They create a wake, and that keeps the ball from dropping. It sort of pulls the ball up. And so, you know, that's what you were alluding to with the Pablo Lopez thing. They swing under it, it stays up, and it swings under it. So it's, in fact, less of a two-plane pitch and more of a one-plane pitch that looks like a two-plane pitch. So that's why we've come up with a sweeper designation, because I think to the batter, it looks like a slurve, and then it doesn't drop as much as they expect. And that's the sweeper. And that's kind of difficult if you kind of expect a ball to have... When, when you see a ball have that much uh, horizontal movement, I think your brain thinks... This is a two-plane thing. This is a curveball, you know? And it's basically like a curveball without any of the curveball drop. You know? It's just a... Like, if you want to call it a Frisbee, now I can get on board. It's a Frisbee. But it's not, uh, I don't think, a slurve. Anyway. I was just about to add uh, the screenshot I was looking at of Otani's pitch locations. I always find these to be pretty fascinating. And again, mm -hmm. these are the three pitches he throws the most. The sweeper, 
the four seamer and the cutter. I'm sorry if we're describing something on the screen again. If you're watching us on YouTube, this makes sense, but we'll try to make it make sense if you're listening to the podcast version. Part of the reason I think this is working so well for Otani is that he has a pretty consistent location strategy. So if those pitches all look reasonably similar coming out of his hand, they're going to cause some problems. Just looking at where he goes, it's kind of low, middle, in on the zone. Like, not middle in, but low, like, middle third part of the strike zone for all those pitches. For each of these pitches, the sweeper is going to take off uh, towards the lefty batter box in terms of movement, you know? The four seam is going to jump more and stay true. And the cutter is going to be somewhere in between them in terms of movement. So, yeah, you're right. That's three pitches coming from the same trajectory that are going to do things very different things at least horizontally and also kind of vertically so you know the maybe there's uh some sort of you know quote-unquote tunneling happening here um and you can also tell from this heat map that uh otani's trying to sneak his sweeper in back door against lefties and i think that is probably the best way to do it because what happens with the sweeper is it's so horizontal that the lefty sees it forever and knows what pitch it is, and I think usually takes. So the only way you can kind of sneak a sleeper, sweeper by a lefty, I think, is try to pepper the outside part of the plate and don't miss middle, middle. <laughs> but that's true of just about every pitch, right? You can't yeah. miss middle, middle with most things. It's gonna yeah. get so anyway, good question, OJ. Thanks for sending that in. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Uh, some other questions that came in for today's episode. Alan was curious about late season starting pitching strategy. In this particular instance, Alan's situation is a 16-team head-to-head categories league with quality starts instead of wins currently in first place in his division. And overall, so it's playoff time for Allen. It's going to be a few weeks away. Here's the problem. John Gray, Nathan Evaldi, Freddie Peralta, Tanner Bybee, Gavin Williams, Bryce Miller, and Bobby Miller. Those last four especially coming up on innings caps. So Allen's worried he'll be left with the old guys and then having to troll the waiver wire just as the playoffs begin. So especially in deeper leagues, not much pitching out there. And I just saw some breaking news from uh, our friend Katie Wu at The Athletic that Steven Matz's season might be over the lat strains. There's one more pitcher who was pitching well who might be on the shelf for the rest of the season. He just can't. It's it's brutal. What is the what is the adjustment here? How much should you worry if you're relying on some combination of those young starters or others that we've talked about throughout this season? Like how do you get from here to there, especially in head to head leagues where your most important weeks of the season might be the last two weeks of the season? I think I think he's right to do what he's doing. I think you give up a little bit of future value uh, if it's a, it's keeper H2H, right? I think this is, it doesn't say it's a keeper league, but plenty of people are in that spot. Even if it's not keeper, what you can do is give up a little rid of risk for, uh, for you can trade some upside for surety. You know what I mean? Like you could trade uh, Bryce Miller and Tanner, Tanner Bybee to somebody for, uh, what's the, What's a, 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 a like a Zach Gallon, right? Would that be impossible? Is that crazy? What what's what, what's a little bit lower than Zach Gallon? But somebody like him, it's Sunny Gray too far lower. Yeah, okay. Or maybe you take one of those guys and trade him for Sunny Gray. Yeah, but I'm saying you know sort of package the risks to to get up higher. But maybe maybe buy low on Sandy. I mean, there's a guy who gives you innings, right? Yeah, try to do two for one on on Sandy. Um and uh, who is somebody else? I believe in their innings up there. Maybe Eflin. What about um, like you say Kikuchi. 
He's pitching really well. Has the walk rate down to that career best mark so far. Still missing a good use, number of bats. I think I would, he's more of a, I would use one of those guys, but. Yeah. But yeah, that's not bad. Uh, you know, so you trade in some risk for uh, a veteran that doesn't have the same upside as, you know, what maybe a Bryce or Bobby can do the rest of the way. Let me see if I can come up with uh, numbers for you here. I'm going to put the over under on innings uh, for Bryce Miller at 150, and he's at 110. He could probably, maybe he can go a little more than that. He went to 132 last year, 133. Yeah. Okay, so 155. Let's put the over under on 155. Uh, the, 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 the Mariners are probably a little bit more, let's get to the postseason and then worry about our postseason rotation when we get there more than, you know, let's shut somebody down. That's how I feel. You know, they're kind of got back into the race a little bit. You know, there's some pressure on them to do something. So I would say they're going to use up all of his innings in the po- in the regular season. And that means that if he's got another 50, 45, uh, 50 pitches, uh, innings in him, I think he can make it to the end of the season. Do you think Bobby Miller's projected total is a lot less than Bryce Miller's? All right. So let's go to Bobby Miller. We've got a total for 2022 at 111. Uh, but he's also pitched fewer innings so far. So even if we even if we give him 130, 135 as the over-under, he's only at 83. So yeah. he has a similar amount of innings left. But his team may screw around with his innings to keep him in the postseason rotation. On the 3-0 show, I believe, we put Bobby Miller in as their number three in the postseason. I still think that makes a lot of sense because I think there's a very good chance that he is their third best starter when they've got everybody healthy. We talked about the Lance Lynn schedule. That's happening right now. He's dominating against that that weak part of the schedule. So I want to see what happens when Lynn faces some better lineups in the next few weeks. Uh, but I, I think Bobby Miller being handled a little differently. We've seen the Dodgers do it with young pitchers before, too, where they, they pull back a little bit in September and they push them more aggressively in October. But generally, there is enough room here. We don't have to panic about Bobby Miller or Bryce Miller at this point. Here's the guy to panic about. Yeah, who, who's your guy that you're worried about? I think it might be Tanner Bybee. And it, it's, it's, it's a little bit less about the innings because he has a, a fairly robust number of innings. Last year, he put together 133 innings, right? That's pretty good. You want to put the over-under at 155, 160, I wouldn't argue with you. However, he's already at 123. So despite having a higher like possible innings cap, Tanner Bybee is closer to it than the other guys. And my last piece of reasoning is the team context situation I feel like if the Guardians fall out of the race, they don't pitch him. And this isn't something that I think will happen September 1st. But when is your head-to-head competition? Like, when is your head-to-head finals? Because if your head-to-head finals is the last week of the season, I I, I would be like, if they're six games out, and there's a week to go in the season, Tanner Bobby's not pitching again. Yeah, that's a fair point. And I think for, for Williams, looking at the same rotation, I think he has matched last season's total. If I'm doing the back of the napkin math correctly, 115 last season, 115 right now. It gives him 40 more before they start thinking about a shutdown. Which What Williams are we talking about here? Gavin Williams. Oh, yeah, Gavin. Same kind of problem. I love him, though. I love his fastball. Um. Yeah, uh, again, a, a nice innings total, uh, but sim- same team context, and he's already at it. So you, what would you give him as another you know, 25, 30 innings? So they have a couple of pitchers that, that are going to run up against their innings uh, totals. It's going to be interesting to see what they do. And then there's also the risk that because they have all, you know, a couple of guys that are coming up on these numbers, that they do something like a six-man, you know, just to just to do that and that that doesn't that's not obviously as bad but it it does mean that you're going to get fewer starts from Gavin Williams you know uh so I think the number of starts for Gavin Williams might be left might be five or six what do you think the best tactic is for 
acquiring the innings you need. A 16-team league, the waiver wire is pretty thin. I mean, if you have to churn a lot and the rules are first come, first serve, decent pitchers will come up. Is it going after players that maybe have shown us signs of turning around a disappointing season, like where the, the surface numbers are still bad, but the more recent numbers are good? Thinking about Jamison Tyon in particular, where mm. it really seems like he has settled into being over his last seven or eight starts the pitcher many of us thought he'd be going into the season. I liked him as a mid-rotation filler around pick 200. I thought with the pitch mix, I thought with the ballpark, he was really safe. Leaving Yankee Stadium, some of the problems Tyon's had against lefties, those would be less of a concern because he wouldn't get punished quite as much as he did when he was at Yankee Stadium. And that didn't look true for April and May, but from about June on, he's actually started to look like that guy. Are those the types of guys you're looking for who also don't have any real young pitcher innings risk attached to them either maybe because i mean if you want to trade you know your young hot starting pitchers that may have innings risk on them for a pitcher who's established and has been good all year well good luck you're probably not going to find a lot of willing buyers in that case (laughs) or you're going to have to pair them as you mentioned before but give two and get one and even then that could be tough I, you know, I tend to, uh, you know, I tend to gravitate towards uh, veterans with established track records that maybe aren't pitching quite up to their numbers, uh, because you just feel like, you know, even a, a non-competitive team may just decide uh, to continue pitching them so that they get right. You know what I mean? Um, so I kind of think of Aaron Nola a little bit as like. Man, maybe you could you could sneak that cheese past the rat, you know. Like maybe you could get a, a, a you know a, a prime guy that people thought was a top twelve pitcher that just hasn't really pitched up to his numbers, um, and uh, and and get somebody like that. Because um, I'm just worried that like let's say you take you know somebody who feel like he has more innings, like Hunter Brown, or you know somebody who hasn't used their innings up, Hunter Green. You know he's coming back. Um, I don't know. I feel like you run into uh, just as much as those guys where maybe the Astros, you know, start coasting at some point or they go to six man because they've got a bunch of guys or whatever. Take Dylan Cease, you know, because he's more the veteran that has innings left, but maybe he's just going to, I saw some analysis that he changed his release point and his extension uh, in order to improve his changeup. And that has uh, messed up his, his slider and curveball have morphed together. So he's kind of a two pitch guy now. You know, it's not a guarantee that Dylan Cease turns it around, but yeah, like Cease and Nola, I would feel uh, amazing by. That's sort of where I would I would look for something like that. I think Tarek Skubal would also be on my target list. I mean, because of the time he missed, no real concerns about him getting shut down. Everything looks really good in that arsenal. Good swing and miss it's stuff. He has that, so few innings; they just want him to build up innings, even on a bad team. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are I think those are all viable paths. It's a common problem. You play in a head-to-head league, you play in a roto league too. You're just worried about guys getting shut down and not having enough uh, innings and keeping those counting stats rolling in during those final weeks but of the I season. But I think also just think of think of the um the psychology of the offer. So the psychology of the offer is you're offering two hot young things, right? I think it doesn't make as much sense to then try to get a hot young thing back. I think you want to get a boring old thing back, you know? So think about that, the psychology where you're like, oh, hey, take these hot, you know, awesome hurlers, throw in 98 and give me your decrepit 92, you know, give me your Joe Musgrove, he's super boring, don't worry, you know? You know, I don't know if you can pull that one particular, but that's the sort of thing I'd be looking at. It's like, you get something boring back. Thanks a lot for that question, Alan. We've got uh, another question that is connected to the others i love when things all connect together sometimes it's because you know we purposely cherry pick questions that work together but when the mailbag is full of things that are related it makes our job a lot easier uh this question is uh, about how we measure workloads the mason miller segment of your most recent episode led to confusion on why we use innings instead of pitches thrown we we're talking about how long it might take the a's to build mason miller up to a full starters workload probably a week or so ago um, not all innings are created equal. A 30-pitch inning where a pitcher gets roughed up isn't the same as a three-pitch inning. If you wanted to go deeper into the weeds, you can tally your pitches thrown in off-day bullpens and warm-up throws. More into innings, DVR and Eno made it seem like it's a race against time to get Miller into his high number to create a solid benchmark for the following season. Why not use AFL to increase innings 
or have them throw in-house simulated games. See, the thing about this is, and this was something I thought about with Forrest Whitley several years ago. We were trying to figure out Forrest Whitley's workloads when he was coming off all the injuries. We don't know about all of the side sessions. We don't really understand or have a way of tracking those innings, those those pitches, that workload as part of the season workload. So I, I do think there's a, a lot here to, to dig into. Uh, but generally, I mean, what do you think? Are, are we doing this collectively, not just you and I? Are we doing this wrong, measuring innings instead of pitches and, and looking at pitcher workloads the way that we do? Well, I mean, there's us on the outside trying to approximate the work that they're doing inside without any of their information. And so that's why we look at former that past innings totals. And, uh, you know, I also uh, think about how hard they throw, how hard they throw their breaking ball. And so, you know, that's it's sort of generally trying to assess uh, injury risk from the outside without any of the information they have. Then you have your kind of uh, your organizations that are behind uh, that are doing something very similar to what we're doing <laughs> and just sort of like guesstimating uh, based on innings. Then I think you have your more uh, middle-class uh, player development systems, pitching health uh, systems that uh, they do, they wear sleeves uh, sometimes and directly measure stress on the elbow in throwing sessions. Uh, they, I would say that almost every team is tracking uh, pitches thrown when, uh, you know, getting warm, getting hot, you know, bullpen sessions. So I think the, the, the large meat of baseball is tracking a lot of what uh, our, our question answer wants them to, you know, is, is tracking it more on a minute pitches-based level. Now, the very best teams um, are, have a, such, such a robust collection of data that they will have, they can marry direct stress on the elbow gotten from arm sleeves to, you know, maybe modeled stress on the elbow uh, based on on what they found with direct stress and fatigue, and they have a fatigue model. And you know, like the Cubs just signed Mike Son, who had fatigue units. And fatigue units is how 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 long you take between pitches, how hard you throw, uh, you know, how many pitches you threw, how much rest you got. And now that he works for a team, he gets to put five, six, seven, eight more features into his model to model fatigue better. You know, so you know the Cubs at some point are going to be out in the forefront of exactly what we're talking about here because they've got one of the guys who is doing it in the public space. You know, I know uh, Casey Mulholland at Connect Pro has the sleeves. He has his own kind of sleeve where he's doing direct measurements. He has his own uh, sort of fatigue modeling. He was close to Mike's son and, and believed a lot of things he believed. He told me, for example, in my running, that when I do a peak run, uh, it's 72 hours recovery. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, I might do my peak runs on Wednesday. That means I'm running again on Friday and I'm always fatigued and I can feel it. Um, and so I don't, not sure I can make my schedule work the way that, you know, Casey Mulholland wants my schedule to work but because I have kids and, and work responsibilities and stuff. But that's something that pitchers will think about. Like maybe if I throw a hundred innings, I should not do anything for the next three days because I have you know, I have the 72 hour cycle. Maybe you'll see teams when they push their relievers pretty hard. If it, if it gets past a certain number of pitches, 25, 30, 35 pitches, they will get two straight days off. Um, and so I think the better teams are doing most of what he's talking about, but it is hard for us on the outside to approximate all that without the same information. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, it's well stated. And I, I think it, it's still, is it fair to say that the wearable tech, like the sleeve, it's still too early to know like how much of an impact that might be having in injury prevention? Like it's it's still, it seems to me like it's still in the, let's just gather a lot of information and see what we can figure out. Are we further than that? Or is that where we're really at? I mean, I I think we're in the, in, in a phase right now of figuring out some stuff about injury because, you know, Jimmy Buffy uh, gave a, not Buffett, uh, Jimmy Buffy gave a presentation at uh, the uh, at the conference, and he works at Reboot Motion. And what he does is he can give you biomechanical um, advice, consult consultation, if you just upload video into his thing, and he kind of runs it through his system, gets certain angles. He's done a he has a model that's like modeled all of these things and related them to stress on the elbow and velocity and stuff like that. So. 
he can tell you, oh, your you know your lead leg flexion is not where other people's are that throw harder. You know, like you're this or that or you know what you do here with your body. So that kind of analysis, the fact that he's presenting at the Saber Conference means two things. It means that some teams are doing more than that already. You know, enough that like you know this guy is presenting. You know what I mean? And he's comfortable presenting it. Like he's not. He's comfortable presenting it because he's, it's not something that nobody knows. And he wants, he wants people to know that he knows it. That also means it's not something that everybody knows because he's at the conference trying to tell <laughs> teams, hey, you can just send all your video to me and I'll do your biomechanical work for you. You know, That's, why, you know, it's, it, that's how conferences work. You kind of present, you show a little bit of leg, and then the teams are, oh, that's interesting. And, and then you, you show them a little more leg, and then you, you tell them you'll do all their, their videos. So... Um, <clears throat> We're in a spot right now, I think, where there is separation between teams. There and but all the teams are interested in the space and are all trying to get better at fatigue modeling and biomechanical modeling, so that they can both. It's always two things: keep their players healthy and have them throw harder, which right. is, are diametrically opposed. <laughs> That's tug of war right there, just pulling opposite directions and. You want both of those things, but you may only be able to have one. That's... And which one do you think a team will target if they have a choice? Um, I got a guess that you know throwing harder is probably going to yeah, win. Probably the throwing harder. Yeah, staying healthy is going to get thrown in the mud in that game of tug of war, especially uh, if you're in Tampa. Thanks a lot for that question, Joseph. Uh, I got a question here from Ted about using defense in fantasy. Why do so few fantasy baseball leagues factor in fielding? Is it because scoring around the league is so inconsistent? Would it make a difference if we had to drop a stat to factor it in? Which stat would you recommend runs RBIs? Basically, out of the typical roto stats, what would you throw out if you were going to add defense? I think the reason people don't do it is because for a long time, at least back when fantasy baseball started, there were very few useful ways to measure defensive value. I think we've, in the last 10 years, seen a lot kind of come to light that actually helps in that regard. And we've got more public-facing things now, too. So if you wanted to use defensive runs saved or outs above average, you could do that. You could reasonably make that a category. Whether or not you should, um, I'm more on the no. I don't really want defense to be part of fantasy because I think it's already built in as far as playing time goes. I think understanding a player's defensive limitations or actual skills that actually gives you a better sense for projecting playing time and it's still in fantasy critically it's important. Still important for us to know because of, of, of playing time for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, it's present enough. I know it's a bigger part of, of games like score sheet, some of the Sims out there, but as far as like your roto leagues go, I think we're better off not having it than having it. Uh, if I was going to cut one of the roto hitting stats to add a defensive stat, geez, which stat would I get rid of first runs? I guess I'd get rid of, I don't know. It'd be interesting because you would actually probably, there'd be similar players that you would hurt and help in that situation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, more top of the order guys that are playing in the most, you know, uh, in the most uh, prestigious defensive positions. So if you kind of switch it over to defense, you get a lot of top of the order guys still who'd be losing some value on runs. Uh, another thing I think is just uh, one thing that is impractical about it is just the, the nature of defensive statistics. So um, most of our stats that we use are counting stats, you know, and even though it says defensive runs saves, it's not really a counting stat in that way. You can have minuses, you can lose it, you know. So uh, and also if you did defensive runs saved, it'd be really weird because you'd play a whole year and you'd get a five would be an okay number. <laughs> You know, so right. what would the spread be there? Uh, you have to think about the spread. So then if you start doing something that is a counting stat, and I have seen stuff like outs, like outs made defensively, um, the weirdest stuff happens. You need to look at who leads the league in outs. It's like a lot of times it's first baseman. <laughs> right, yeah. <that's>... <laughs> <laughs> like there isn't really a great defensive counting stat, I would say. Is it worth trying to make one? No. <laughs> no. I don't think it really works that way, man. I think you can hurt your team on defense and you can help your team on defense. It doesn't just add up. Outs. I was just going to see if I could pull it up on, on baseball reference while we're talking here. Outs made. No, that's not what I want. I want the defensive outs. Outs made. 
pitching leaderboard, fielding leaderboards, putouts. Putouts. Single season. Yeah, so I have putouts, and it's JT Realmuto, Nate Lowe, Matt Olson, Spencer Torkelson, Fred Freddie Freeman, Jose Abreu, Ty France. Like, okay, yeah, the first baseman, because they catch those throws. <laughs> yeah, that's not really what we want to assist. add. So I, What's assist? Is that assist? Yeah, assist. Okay, so now then you get the shortstop. You get the shortstops. If you did assist, Wanda Franco, Francisco Lindor, Ozzy yeah. Albies, Ezekiel Tovar, Andres Jimenez. So assists could be your number, and you have, you know, a league leader will have like four hundred, and uh, a bad what's a bad shortstop? Ahmed Rosario has two hundred nine. So you'd have a spread there. Again, that'd still be kind of weird. It'd still be kind of weird because you would have a category that has a much different spread than most places. Like, what other stat do people have 300 of right now? Yeah, it's not, it's not good. It's not, it's not a stat that I would want to use for that purpose. But I like, the, I like the, the spirit of the question. I just don't think you need to add a counting stat in this case because you, you have it. It's factored in. It's playing time. It's playing time. That's where your, your defensive value gets baked into fantasy. Thanks a lot for that question, Ted. We are going to go on our way out the door. A reminder, you can get a subscription to The Athletic for just $2 a month for the first year at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We're back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening.